Good evening. Let's begin by singing the little chorus, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. You can remain seated. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free turn to song number 87 as we continue this evening song number 87 fairest lord jesus fairest lord jesus third verse. Fair is the sunshine, fair is still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines pure. Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God, and man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore. down to song number 88 there, more precious than silver. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are costly than time. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing I desire 
compares with you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for allowing us to gather once again in your name. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy in our lives that allows us even to be here this evening. God, I pray that you would help us to focus our attention, Lord, on you, on your preciousness. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Bless this evening, Lord, be with Pastor as he opens the word of God to us this evening. Help us to be attentive and to learn what it is that you have for us from your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn over to song 79 before our scripture reading this evening. Song number 79. My Jesus, I love thee and will sing the arrowed stanzas. And let's stand as we sing. My Jesus, I love thee. My Jesus, I love thee. I know verse as a prayer without the instruments in mansions of glory. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the, the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray before we prepare our hearts for the offering tonight. Father, I thank you for your love for us, Lord, that you, um, you show to us daily, every, every day at every moment, Lord. Help us just to always be looking to your glory and your honor and uh, just to be looking to the future, Lord, the paradise that we have to spend eternity with you. Just be with us that we would uh, make wise decisions this week and just that we would honor you and the actions that we take. Again, thank you for your love, Lord, for sending your son to die for us. And thank you for your grace for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Faith and Kevin. You can make your way to song number 634, More Love to Thee. And as we do that, let's sing the chorus, I Love You, Lord. I think we all know that little chorus, I Love You, Lord. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul. joy my king in 
you here. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. More love to thee, 634. More love to thee, O Christ. asked me to come and give a few uh, facts about and thoughts about Vacation Bible School this past week. We wanted to share some of these. Some of them are numbers and some of them are things to consider as we look to the future in light of what happened in the past this last week. First of all, I think this is the first time I've ever experienced in my years of ministry where I had a call for help in a ministry and actually had several people that I had to say to them, I don't really have any more jobs for you to do. Uh, that's, that's called a, a, if you ever talk to anybody in, in a full-time Christian ministry in, the church, in any of these church uh, organizations, they would, that's a dream to have so many people wanting to get involved. And uh, by the way, Pastor said, that won't happen again as far as not having something for you to do. We'll find something for you to do. He's, he was thinking as particularly of, the, uh, of our uh, play. There's, we, uh, the play is kind of like a black hole. You can keep bringing more and more people into work there. And, and uh, they, as you, if, you, if you were here Thursday night, you saw the production. Uh, it's getting more and more elaborate every year. And we'll, we will find a job for you. So don't ever, don't ever think that there isn't a place 
for you to serve and volunteer. We had teens and adults involved, and uh, it was just a tremendous uh, opportunity for people to minister to one another. And, and even for those who I, I couldn't think of a particular job when they talked to me, we found something for them during the week, too. So it was great. It was just a tremendous, I didn't count, well, over, well over 30 people who uh, were involved in, the, in, the, in having responsibilities in ministry during Bible school. It's just great to see the numbers of people in our church getting involved, and uh, teens as well as adults ministering and, and wanting to serve. I was going to tell you a couple of our numbers. In the past, our average attendance in Bible school, the last three summers since I've been here, has been about 55. This year we averaged 75 a night with a high of 87. So kind of like, that's an average of 20, for those of you who wanted me to do the math for you, that's 20 more per night than we have ever had in the past. Tremendous uh, uh, a number of people from our neighborhood here particularly who came uh, as a result perhaps of, of canvassing and finding out about the Bible school, but they came, and they came in large numbers. We had 96 different children attend during the week, and if you figure, and, and I, I looked in our records, 37 of those were our own, okay? So that means that were 59 of those were not our own. Uh, some, a, a couple of them were relatives of our, of, of our people, but the vast majority of them were people that were your neighbors and the neighbors of our church coming to visit us. And that means, by the way, that we have some work ahead of us with 59 contacts. Now, that they're representing sometimes multiple children in each family, so there's not that many houses to contact, but uh, there will be a lot of people to follow up on here in, from Bible school. It's a great opportunity for us to uh, kind of get our foot in the door in some of these area townhouses and apartment buildings that you know, we, we see these people all around us here, and we wonder, how can we get in there? How can we get the gospel to, to these people? And Bible school has been an opportunity for us, even this past week, to get our foot in that door. We wanted to, I'm more to say that in a second here, but I wanted to say also that the, for the first time this year, we gave a missionary offering, for, and we, were, we had hoped to be able to give a check to the days when they were here today. But the Lord had other plans as far as Shambu's coming. But the children responded, and maybe some of it was the parents as well, I don't know. But uh, we gave $568.51. For That was just four nights of offering. And most of that was in coins. Uh, we would weigh the offering every night. The kids got into that, and it was the boys won two nights and the girls won two nights. So it was an exciting opportunity to give and to see the children excited about the days and their ministry. Their missionary story was about John Hyde, who had been a missionary in India, and um, Joanne Ranch, who taught the missionary story, also brought in uh, things about the days every night, and the children really, really uh, responded. And um, it's exciting to see that outpouring of love for them. Now, I, I wanted to ask this question then. What do these numbers mean? I think we have a lot of potential contacts here for the future, and I think they, I'd like to direct my thoughts here in a couple directions. Number one, for our friends and neighbors of you, those of you who brought friends and neighbors from your own neighborhoods, contacts that you've made through your, maybe your children's friends at school or what have you, I, I think there's about, what do I have here? 
I have five things down here to think about. Number one, inform parents of these children about our Wednesday night programs. We did tell them about our Wednesday night programs, but remind them again that, hey, we, we have Wednesday night programs for your kids. We'd be glad to take them and volunteer to uh, bring them. Secondly, if the parents have no church home or preference, volunteer to, oh, I just said that, to take the children with you here on Wednesday nights. Thirdly, be active in maintaining and developing a personal relationship with that family. I, I, I don't think there's necessarily the mentality here, but it's so easy to fall into a mentality that says, well, we'll just get those people to the church and the pastor can preach to them and then they'll get saved that way. Well, the, the preaching of the word is the way people get saved. There's no question about it. But the main way that these people are going to, I, it would seem that the most common way that people in your neighborhood are going to hear the gospel is from your lips. You've already, mean, you've already established a relationship with them. Maybe it's because of your children's uh, relationships with their children. But they know you a whole lot better than they know Pastor Miller or myself. You have a contact there. And I would encourage you to engender a relationship. Look at those people as your mission field. They're your neighbors. They're your people across the street. They're the ones that you have contact with. So make it a point then to establish a relationship with them. Think of ways to get together with them. Now, they might not have all the same hobbies you do, but think about ways that you can get together to do things. Go to a Twins game together. Have them over for a dessert, uh, root beer floats or something at your house. But think of ways to engender a relationship with these people and get to know them. And that's going to be then a more of an open door for you in the future to invite their children again and maybe to invite them to Friends Sunday this fall to get them to the church building. But again, evangelism doesn't necessarily take place, well, doesn't take place usually in these four walls or inside these four walls. It's going to take place as you talk to them. So I'd encourage you to do that. Look for opportunities to talk about spiritual things. And you know what as well? You can lead a Bible study with that person. If you want tools, ideas, suggestions, we'll, we'll be glad to give some to you. But uh, if they would see if they'd be interested in, hey, let's, would, you like, would you be interested in a Bible study? Um, just reading through a passage of scripture together and talking about it was better than what they're doing already in their life, which is probably nothing. And believe me, you have a lot more knowledge of scripture than they do. And God has given you that opportunity here uh, training in this church and probably other churches you've been in perhaps in the past and uh, look for those opportunities. And then uh, lastly, remember that leading a soul to Christ requires purpose and effort. It also requires your personal involvement. And you know there, there might indeed be an interest on the part of your neighbor to come here to the church for the Thursday night Bible study that will be starting up in September. Maybe they would like to come here for that, invite them for that. Um, get them and invite them to our friends Sunday. And there are some things here at the church, of course. But God has put you into that person's life. It's not an accident that, that their children came with you to Bible school. And uh, take advantage, then, of that opportunity. And then the second um, set of people that we had come to our Bible school, not only are the people that you have contact with in your neighborhood, but are the people from our own neighborhood here that just came that nobody really knows. And these are contacts that we would like to follow up on. 
And if you're interested in, in being involved and follow up with the people in our neighborhood, uh, contact me, we'll, uh, we'll get you busy. And we would like to really invite these people in our neighborhoods. In fact, they already have been invited because we sent home a flyer about our Wednesday night programs. And we're going to try to maintain contact with them, inviting them to other church things. But um, we'd also like to get them involved in Bible study, maybe in a Thursday night Bible study or any, another Bible study if, the, if they're not able to make it that time. So again, we're looking for an open door here. We have an open door to contact these parents. And uh, we're hoping to be able to take advantage of that. And like Pastor said this morning, I think this is one of our best that we've seen opportunities to uh, reach out. And I, I know that we, we can and will. And I just I encourage each of you to uh, continue to pray in, re in regard to these 59 children who came who weren't part of us and uh, for opportunities to keep on going and, and moving out into our neighborhoods. Thanks. Thank you. I think I'll stand down here so I can use the overhead a little better. My apologies to Luke. That was a great service there, and I just realized we kind of blew it. <laughs> we had they're all ready and then start the announcements, but uh, we do need to stop and talk about our VBS here a little bit and want to just add a few things to Pastor Pratt's report. Um, I think we might think of this VBS as a success, and that's kind of a scary word because obviously God may know and may be more pleased with what we did last year or the year before. Um, he may see things that we don't see. What we tend to see are the numbers, but if we can look at just the numbers, it certainly appeared to be very successful. We really blew the numbers away here uh, over the last few years. But numbers aren't everything. On the other hand, it really does seem that there were some unique things that took place in this uh, Bible school. And I don't know if I'm the only one. I think Pastor would agree and others, I think, have sensed the same thing. We didn't do anything differently than we've ever done. But there was some working that God was doing that was very evident here. And um, in that sense, if it's the work of God, then that's success. It's, uh, I, it isn't us and what we've done, but we do need to be faithful. But I, I think God was at work in a unique way. We uh, labored some years here uh, since we moved here in 96, where we've had very little response from our neighborhood. We did the same thing. We went from door to door and dropped off flyers and tried to contact kids and got very, just didn't get very far. This year that was very different and it was very obvious. Let me share a few things with you that I think evidence that God was at work in a unique way. We had kids here that came from some of the following homes and I'm just telling you what I know by just simply being alive. I, I wasn't leading the VBS, I just was kind of walking around here. We had Mormons here, we had Hindus here, Roman Catholics, Lutheran, United Methodist, Christian Reformed families. All kinds of families were here from many different perspectives. I'm sure some were heathen. Uh, there were some who, I remember one of the teachers was, was saying, got going and realized these kids never heard that Christ came and was born. They hadn't even heard that. So I, I think we had probably some, some uh, secularists here as well, but quite a, quite a uh, unique connection. Um, I think of just a couple stories, and I know I'm going to miss a hundred stories, but 
think of uh, Jennifer's neighbor there who is going through a very similar situation to what you guys did when the Lord brought you to himself and, and uh, he's, uh, he has been saved and she's freaking out or something like that. But I saw Jennifer talking to her and a Roman Catholic lady there and uh, the Jensen's neighbors came uh, and uh, this young lady's very interested in a church that's interested in God and uh, was enthused by being here and working with us and then got to meet her mom on Thursday night who came and she said something I thought I needed to share with you but she said what is the deal with the men in this church you got all these men working in here and she said we got three men that come once in a while to a few things and that's about all we can get women do all the work in the church and she said, and, and our pastor's just sick about it, but she just doesn't know what to do. <laughs> but it, um, it really led to a very interesting uh, discussion. And I talked to her about the fact that having active men in a church is not something that happens naturally. It's something that needs to be nurtured and developed. And we talked a little bit about what we do and stri stri how we strive to encourage that within our church. And uh, um, I was probably messing with her a little bit, but it was, it was really fun. It was really a good conversation. Um, I think of Carol's, Carol Miller's uh, neighbor girl, the Hindu girl, that came and heard a story about uh, India and about uh, a missionary in India. Uh, the Underwoods have been working with a neighbor for a couple years or so. I don't know if they're here tonight, but there they are. Uh, she came. It didn't want to ever be pushed, but here she was on Thursday night and heard the gospel very clearly here in the assembly and a workmate as well that uh, was here on Thursday night. And the Pratt's got a Roman Catholic deacon here in our church on Thursday night. And he's got a project. They've got a project to work on, but... Uh, to be a deacon in a Roman Catholic church is a pretty high position in their, in their system. And uh, we had, um, that, that was just amazing. And I had a chance to talk with him afterwards. Uh, we had a young girl up the street that um, came with us. And I was talking to her mom on Thursday night who was also here. And she's getting baptized in her church, sprinkled in her church here this, actually today. And we talked about that and got on that and um, uh, worked through it. My point is they're pretty committed to their church. And she got real quiet toward the end and she said, you know what, she can come to church with you if she wants. <laughs> so she said, if she wants to come on Wednesday night, that's okay. Then there was a long pause and she said, she can even come on Sundays if she wants. <laughs> so I think there was an enthusiasm on this girl's part that mom hadn't seen before for the things of God. And, I can say that another neighbor up from us that we brought, a young boy, was given a Gospel of John on one night. He took it home. He's going into second grade. He read that till 11.30 in the evening um, after receiving that Gospel of John. I think Marge was helping in the class and gave him a Bible then, and his mom said to us that he's carrying that everywhere he goes, causing her a little consternation, I think. <laughs> It's a good Lutheran, you know, that uh, he said, we don't give kids Bibles until they're in third grade, she said, which uh, was quite a commentary, along with a number of other things that were said. But these are just some stories, just some things that were happening that God was doing in a unique way. In our neighborhood here, um, we went on, uh, from house to house here several months ago, and I met a young man over here. 
had a nice conversation with him. I remember that night just saying, I, I just don't want to do this. It was just a hard push. It was a Saturday afternoon or morning, I guess it was. And, and I just thought, I just don't want to go out here, honestly. But I'm going to go out and trust God. And it was a hard morning for me. But God just knew, and he was really gentle with me. Because he led me to this guy, and the next people down the road, they talked to, and I had a really good conversation with him. But uh, we went back then to advertise for VBS, and he came. And uh, his kids, he's searching, he's empty. Here he was, sitting, listening to the gospel on Thursday night. Um, there was a girl over here that we ran into, Beth and I, too, when we were passing out flyers that couldn't come last year. She remembers from the year before coming to VBS. And she's been bugging her mom for two years for Eden Baptist Church BBS to start. Well, she came one night on a bike. Her mom's riding in front of her, and there's a whole bunch of friends behind them and the boyfriend at the end, mom's boyfriend at the end of this whole string of bikes that come and all park on the front here. And that is something that we've longed for for so long. And here are now many of these neighbor kids saying, hey, it's all right to go over there. And, and we were able to connect with many of them. The program, the gospel, was presented in the play very, uh, I think, very pointedly. It's kind of a little trick that goes on there. We're being honest with everybody. Nobody needs to come. We don't twist any arms, but that's really just a sermon. <laughs> the play is just a sermon. That's all it is. But uh, we have the kids acting, and so they bring their parents, and they're listening, and we, we have the ten pages of, of the plan of salvation there, uh, taking them through the stories of, of Christ crucified and risen. It's what a tremendous opportunity. There were a, a number of parents that came, more than we've ever seen from our neighborhood. Uh, these are just a few of the stories that, uh, again, as I said, I just picked up by just being here. I, I didn't, nobody necessarily shared everything with me. I just heard these things, overheard these things, and I think that God has been uniquely at work among us. And I want to uh, put my thoughts with Pastor Pratt's that we need to do something about this. I think first of all is to really pray and to pray hard. God very obviously was working to draw people here, some unique situations of people that are searching and interested and watching and seeing things they've never seen before. We need to ask that the Lord would grant us a harvest in these contacts. And we need, I think, to make some great adjustments within our church as to the climate and the atmosphere that we create here for the unbeliever. There's some things I'm thinking about along those lines and I want to present them to you beginning, Lord willing, in September on Sunday nights. But I know it's a little dangerous, but hang with me here. Uh, they talk about, in, uh, in sports a lot of times, about a team having a killer instinct. And a winning team always has a killer instinct. Now, don't take that too far. But I think in evangelistic terms, we need to develop that. And, but what does that mean in evangelistic terms? It doesn't mean twisting people's arm. We can't make anybody receive Christ as Savior. We know we should never even try. Our job is to present the gospel as winsomely as we can, and that doesn't mean twisting anybody's arm behind their back. But a killer instinct in evangelism means persistence in the harvest. It means sticking with it. And we've got these contacts, we have these opportunities that are there before us. We need to stick with it. And that's something I don't think we've done so well at in time past. And I'd like to present some things on that of how we might stay persistent in the harvest.
Another thing that a team needs is a game plan. And I think to some degree we may be uh, hurting there as well. Uh, we all know how to lead people to Christ theoretically, but we need to do it. And we need to do it effectively, and so we need to continue to make progress there. And I, I'll say more of this uh, later. This is to be a positive discussion, and I think that it is and can be. Let's just keep it on that track. Uh, there's, there's always critics, and there are people who criticize what a church doesn't do, and they don't necessarily do anything either. It's just that they wish that it was something it's not. We've got to be careful with that, all of us. We'd all like to see everybody else doing more. We need to do what God wants us to do and to be at peace with it and be patient in the harvest. We have to be patient. I think that's so much of what has taken place here. We have persistently over the last, whatever, six, seven years, gone out into our neighborhoods, sought people, and there hasn't been a whole lot of fruit for it. But God has opened some doors here. There's been a crack, and we need to be persistent in that and to follow through with the game plan accomplishing what God wants us individually to accomplish. Not worrying about anybody else. We can bring others along with us. Great. But let's press on from here. And I want to challenge you hard on that in these next few months and to think carefully about what we might all do in our own unique way. Not everybody's cut out the same way. Uh, we're, we're not going to try to press everybody into one mold. Say, if you don't do this, then you are not evangelistic. But God wants you to reach believe, uh, people for Christ. He wants you to make disciples, as it says in Matthew 28. And so we need to work hard on doing that. I'd like that to be the focus of our coming leaders' retreat. I'd like to ask some questions of the church that might help us to begin to think. What we did here this week, by God's grace, was very vital. It was effective. I don't know why people send their kids to Bible school. It never makes any sense to me. If you're a Mormon, why do you send the kids to a Baptist church? I have no clue. But people do it. And there are other ways that we can connect with people evangelistically and share the gospel with them and the lights are going to come on. We need to consider how to do that and to work hard at it. So that's all a little bit of an advertisement for the future. But be there, be available. I would encourage those, again, that have made contacts in their neighborhoods to stick with it. That's the prayer that went through my head when Pastor Pratt said that. That's me, God, help me. We got these uh, four or five kids that are from our neighborhood that we contacted, and we've got to stick with them. Uh, it's really easy to just get busy and drop it. So let's work to that end. Now, I'm going to present... Uh, passage of scripture here to you. I didn't tell you what it was because I was afraid nobody would come tonight if I told you. But let's just have a word of prayer and maybe you'll stand with me to take a quick break and this will not take uh, too terribly long so uh, we'll go to prayer and then press on in the word tonight. Thank you Father for the opportunity to serve you. What a distinct privilege it is and Lord we are awed by what you have done. Uh, over these last few days, and the gospel message that was proclaimed here through the recitation and the play and the sermon on Thursday night and the number of people who we would assume do not know you as Savior that heard that gospel, we just pray, Lord, that it would take root and that it would bear fruit someday. God, continue to work in the lives of your people and move us as a church to continue to pursue others 
with persistence as you have with us. God, we thank you that salvation is not something that we accomplish. It is your work. And so we plead with you, Father, to open the eyes of the blind through the witness of our mouths and help us to see the truth. And may, even as we look at it here tonight, see it in a way that is unique. We pray that you'll help us to understand the word of God in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Please go back to Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at the genealogy again. That's why I said you wouldn't come back if I told you that. And you can tell me afterwards if you say that was absolutely a waste of time or if you got something from it. But I think there's some things here for us to consider. I worked for a time with a campus ministry leader who boasted of spending hours studying genealogies during his morning devotional time. I think he meant for me to be impressed. But I, uh, knowing the quality of his spiritual life, I remember thinking that he might have helped himself by expanding into a few other genres, if you know what I mean. But uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for our biblical knowledge and spiritual nurture. Genealogies are not, however, the first place to direct new believers. They are not user-friendly to the novice. It's manifestly wrong, however, I think, for us to disregard them altogether. And I sought to demonstrate that briefly this morning. Upon careful review, there are many encouraging truths in these genealogies that lie below the surface. Let me give you just one project, not for tonight, but you might think of this this week. Just go through the genealogy in Matthew. Take a colored pencil or something and mark the names of the women. Go to the biblical text that describes the lives of those women and meditate on what you've seen. Just do that and you'll know the genealogies bear gold in them under the surface. Now you've probably done that, many of you, and understand what I mean, but we also need to establish here that God does not waste ink Every genealogy in Scripture is inherently related to your salvation. And I say that again, every genealogy in Scripture is directly related to your salvation. Turn to 2 Timothy 1 if you want to keep your finger there in Luke. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'd like you to just notice here how Paul puts it. Now let me ask as you're turning there, does Paul make much or little of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ important to Paul or a more minor issue? Obviously it is of great importance to Paul. And notice what he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Join me in suffering for the gospel. Paul makes much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians.
I lost my reference. I hate when I do that. Anybody know what I'm looking for? I apologize. Second Timothy 2. Sorry about that. I got the wrong T. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now what did he say in chapter 1? Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of the gospel. Join me in suffering for the gospel. Notice how he puts it in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. How does he put the gospel? Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. Now that's not the only way that Paul will put the gospel. He mentions the resurrection here. If we go to 1 Corinthians 15, he mentions, of course, in a more formal way, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But notice here, the gospel is put in words of Jesus being a descendant of David. These genealogies are of tremendous importance. And as Christ's genealogies prove, He was a real man, descended from David. That is who the Savior is. So genealogies are important to us as Christians. They were more obviously important to the ancient Israelite. There were some practical reasons why the Israelites saw genealogies as so vital. What would some of that, those reasons be? First of all, remember the land never changed hands. So the genealogy served to define your track of land in your tribe, and in the end, they would never pass hands. They would for a period of time. But these genealogies were very important to establish one's family right to the ownership of the land that God had given to Israel. Secondly, only the Levites could serve as priests. And you were not going to serve if you did not have a defined line to uh, Levi. Do you remember when in Nehemiah, when the Levites came back to the land from Babylon, and there were some Levites there that presented themselves, but they could not present their genealogy? What, what, what happened? Guys, you're going to have to sit around until the Urim and the Thummim shows up. What's that mean? You don't have a genealogical proof that you're a Levite. You can't serve as a Levite. Now, the Urim and Thummim was something we don't know, but a way of determining the will of God and when they could talk to God directly and get visible, actual proof, then they could serve as a Levite. But here again, it was a place for the genealogy. In Genesis 49.10, we have that Judah will be the kingly line. Saul was not of that line, but the prophecy that kings would descend from Judah certainly did not hurt David's cause. So these genealogies, I just share a few examples, were very important to the ancient Israelite. And notice this in Jesus' birth narrative as we make our way back now to Luke. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Here we have Zechariah's song. You remember this, his father Zechariah, Luke 1, 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and has redeemed His people. Notice what verse 69 says. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Zechariah knew where this was going, and he understood the genealogies. Here is the horn of salvation from the family of David. We continue there. He said through his holy prophets long ago, verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant 
the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Notice Mary's song earlier, chapter 1, verse 46. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord when she hears that she will bear the Messiah, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. These genealogical references were vital to the Israelites. Their identity to God was vital to them. Let's remember the string as we discussed it this morning. Genesis 3.15, there will be two kinds of offsprings. Seth stands at the head of that godly line, replacing Abel, Cain, as the uh, rejected line and the ungodly. From Seth we go to Noah, the only righteous man at that time. Through Noah, through Shem, through Eber, through Abram, through David. We have that whole string, that meant everything to the Israelites in many respects. Now as we come to Luke and the genealogy that we find here in chapter 3, I'd like to just look at it now, just getting a sense of the importance to Israel, a sense of its importance to us. It really has everything to do with our salvation. Let's just look at it a little bit and see if we can shake it for some interest here as we look at these genealogies. Now, I, I would love to find a way to put this all down in one line that you could see. I'm gonna, I, I have several... Uh, overheads here that uh, probably won't be ideal, but notice the differences between Matthew and Luke. Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way forward. Luke is going to start with uh, Heli, and uh, some might say with with, uh, Joseph, but he's going to work his way back to Adam. You can probably just uh, see that just by looking, skimming down the two lines. Now Matthew, you'll notice here, is grouped in three segments. We have 14 names in the first segment and 14 in the next, and we have 14 in the third. That'd be on this uh, left column. You ever wondered about that? There's 14 generations, Matthew says, to this guy and 14 to this and 14 to that. What's going on there? Well, this is simplifying, but just remember, they all had to memorize all this. Uh, there's other reasons for it, and there's other things that are being said, but this helped them to memorize the genealogies, to remember, okay, there's three groupings of 14. Now, how do I get there? Some people are missed. There are generations that are skipped. That's okay in a genealogy. When it says so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, that doesn't mean actual father necessarily. It can mean grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. That never meant a, anything to them. Because you just go in and fill in the blanks if you have the time, and they knew who, what the blanks were. Now, we've lost track of who half of these people are. Matter of fact, more than half of them. We have no clue of who these individuals are. This was important to the Israelites, probably not as much to us. But interesting, the grouping there. You'll notice with Luke, there is a grouping of 11 sevens. This, again, would help them to memorize the, uh, the segment and uh, there's other things going on there which we won't take time to get into. But his line goes, uh, his genealogy goes quite long onto page three here, all the way back to Adam. And that's going to probably confuse us here. Let's hang on to that. Notice 
how, secondly, both genealogies avoid saying that Joseph is Jesus' father. You can make your way back to Matthew chapter 1. And verse 16, and then just keep your finger there in Luke. We're going to compare the two a little bit here. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. That's really tripping over your tongue. The genealogies always follow so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. But here we have this stuttering. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Very careful to make clear that Joseph is not the actual father of Jesus. Back to Luke, chapter 3 and verse 23, we find something of the same. Now Jesus himself, Luke 3.23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. So both genealogies agreeing together that Joseph is not the actual father of Christ. Notice how both genealogies avoid this. Jesus' legal standing in Israeli society would be factored through his father. So how does that work? It was no problem to them to work it through an adoptive father, adoptive son. So the father would adopt the son, that became your legal standing. And that is how Jesus connects to the Davidic throne through Joseph as an adopted son. But it's clear again that he's not the physical son of Joseph, just the way the genealogies play out. Now let's ask this question. Why are the genealogies so different? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16. Who is Joseph's father? Go ahead and answer there. Who's Joseph's father? What is it? Jacob. Jacob. Let's go to Luke. I told you to keep your finger there, and I didn't keep mine there. <laughs> We're at, uh, chapter 3 and verse 23, who is Joseph's father? Well, Jacob, right? Patrick just said that. It was Jacob. Jacob's his father. Who is it? Who? Heli. Yeah, uh, Mattathiah, or what, I, I'm not looking at it here, but whatever the other is uh, a little later. Well, who's his father? Heli, or is it, oh, I know, it's a mistake in the text, right? <laughs> the Bible is not true, of course. That's what the, some of the critics like to say. Well, they're just drawing from different traditions, and they're all messed up. They don't really know anything. Well, how do we answer that? What's going on here? Who is Joseph's father? There's several ideas that are proposed, and they break down into two simple categories. One is this, that both of these genealogies are Joseph's genealogy. The first view says this, some of the names are skipped, and that often happens in genealogy. So Methan could be Joseph's grandfather. That's a simple way of, of possibly solving that. Or Helite could be his grandfather, or Jacob could be his grandfather, rather. So that's a possibility that that is uh, the thing there. It's just his grandfather. It doesn't work real well, but there could be some possibility there. A much better view, if they are both Joseph's genealogy, is to say that we have here something, uh, an example of the Leveret marriage. Remember the Leveret marriage? It gives us the willies as Westerners and probably should. 
But that's if, if, if a, if a uh, young man had a wife and died and she didn't have a child, his brother was responsible to marry her and to father children through her. So here's the concept, possibly, that Joseph was adopted. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. That Heli died childless. Then Jacob, who had the same mother as Heli, but a different father, married Heli's widow and father Joseph. Now, uh, and that's where Western minds really start to spin too. We don't follow these things so well, but it could be that idea that this in, that this person's in fact two people. Thus, Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy through Jacob, his actual father, while Luke gives it through Heli, his legal father. Very possible. It could have been. Now, it'd be somewhat odd for that whole thing to work out just that way, but that is a possibility. There's another set of theories, or another, another side to the thinking, and that is that Luke's genealogy records Mary, Mary's genealogy. So the first is that it's Joseph's, and there's different ways to work that out, or that Matthew is Joseph's genealogy, and Luke is Mary's genealogy. Now, how does that work if it's Mary's genealogy? Let's go back to Luke in verse 23. The first view here is that Joseph was adopted by Mary's father, according to Israeli tradition, and this did happen just as much as the Leveret marriage. Heli, because Mary had no brothers, in other words, uh, let me say it this way, Joseph was adopted by Mary's father, Heli, because Mary had no brothers. Thus, Joseph would have had two genealogies. Matthew records his genealogy by birth. What does Luke record? Make sure anybody's following me here. Luke records his genealogy by adoption. This is his adoptive father, and both of those genealogies would have been his legitimate genealogy, one by birth, one by adoption. And if Mary had no brothers, then that is what would have typically happened. There's another view that Luke is Mary's genealogy, and that puts it this way. Joseph's name lacks the article in the Greek, which means something. Now, you go through this, we don't see this here in the English text, but there is a, if I can make the equivalent, a T-O-U, with every name. It's an article, the, the son of. There's no such article here with Joseph, and something strange seems then to be going on. Verse 23, he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Lacking that article there might indicate that the parenthetical statement in verse 23 goes all the way to Joseph. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Parentheses. So Jesus is the son of Heli. That is, Jesus is the grandson through Mary of Heli. Heli is Mary's dad. Make sense? Very strong possibility. Now positively... Through Mary, Jesus has literal, physical connection to the godly line. And that's one thing that certainly commends this view to us, is that it's very clear here how he ties to David in bloodlines through his mother Mary. Now, um, hold on, let me back up and first, I got a little ahead of myself there, let me back up. Um, with this parenthetical idea, the objection is that no gene genealogy ever records a mother's line. To which the standard answer is no genealogy ever recorded somebody that was virgin born. 
So we're kind of breaking new ground here, un undoubtedly. Uh, that doesn't prove it, but it is just, if you hear that statement, it is a little shaking because you never see a mother's genealogy in Israeli tradition. But it could be that that's precisely what Luke is doing here. Uh, so Matthew would give the legal line through Joseph and Jesus' right to the throne. Luke would give the physical line through Mary through one of these two ways. Okay, that having been said, this positively gives us an actual lineage for Jesus, connecting this to David through his physical mother Mary. Negatively, this does something that's very interesting. Make your way, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 22. Many of us are familiar with this idea, and I think, honestly, it really works either way, depending on how you turn the genealogy. In other words, whether both are Joseph's or one is Joseph's and one is Mary's, this same idea uh, works by having two genealogies. But negatively, Luke's genealogy skips the curse on Coniah, who is also called Jehoiachin and Jeconiah. I don't know if his parents had trouble ever figuring out what to name him or what. I, I don't know all the history of that, but there's these three names for him, and it confuses everybody because everybody's translation says something differently there. But in Jeremiah 22, this Jeconiah or Coniah was not a godly man. And God was very upset with him and said, As surely as I live, verse 24 of Jeremiah 22, just as surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and your mother who gave you birth into another country where neither, you, neither of you were born and where you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehoiachin, a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O oh, land, land, he, land, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more. In Judah. So there is a curse placed upon this man saying that he will, there will be no ruler that comes from him, yet he is in the Davidic line. And this is where we get trouble with all these names, but we find here in what would be Joseph's genealogy for sure in Matthew's account. We find here that David is the father of Solomon. And through Solomon, we work our way down here to none other than Jeconiah. He is in that lineage. And God pronounces this curse upon him that there will never be any child of his who sits upon the throne of David. The line will stop there. Now, it is interesting, then, this, if, this is, if this is Joseph's and the other is Mary, which is where I want to conclude here, if that's the case, then Jesus is part of this line through his father, which gives him right to the Davidic throne by legal adoption. 
but bypasses Jeconiah in his bloodline. Yet, as Matthew continues, here is the Davidic lineage. But notice, and it going in the opposite direction now in Luke. Notice that David's son is whom? David's son is not Solomon, through whom comes Jeconiah. David's son is Nathan, bypassing the curse upon Jeconiah. Now, as I said, even if both lines are Joseph's, the adoption of Joseph would permit Jesus to bypass the line of Jeconiah. So we don't really have a problem there. But it is probable that Luke's genealogy is that of Mary's, and thus, through physical descent from his mother, Jesus is a blood relative of David, a blood relative of the godly line, and a man who bypasses at this very point the curse upon Jeconiah. And so Jesus is identified very clearly with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And at the same time has this legal claim to the throne of David through his adoptive father, Joseph. As I've said so often, it is no accident that the New Testament starts with a genealogy. There is this flashing dotted line that takes us through the Old Testament text showing us this narrow line to whom the Messiah would be born. 400 years of silence and you open up the first page of the New Testament and there is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it says to us so many things, does it not? It is not a place that you probably want to go and have your devotions for months on end. But these genealogies confirm very purposefully the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was God, fully God. He was every bit a man. And these genealogies bear witness to that fact. He was not human in a way that is different from us, outside, of course, the union with his divine nature, but he is a man. It tells us also that God knows what he's doing, and he can be implicitly trusted. Putting all this together, as I mentioned this morning, to deceive is absolutely inconceivable. You can work some things out together and come up with some plot with a few people that you know, and maybe a few people that maybe that you didn't know, but somebody was alive connecting the two of you, but you cannot come up with a plot where there are centuries of emptiness between you and the other writers and somehow steer this whole thing to land just perfectly on the person of Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus in his ministry would tell stories, he would tell these parables, and he did so in part to preserve those who would be damned. In other words, he said the truth, but he let it be shielded a little bit so as to preserve to some degree the rebellion of heart that would reject him anyway. There's a degree in a similar way that that's what we're looking at here. God has so carefully constructed the whole history leading up to Jesus being proclaimed as Messiah. You can't miss it if you don't want to. The only way it can be missed is if you steal your face before God and say, I don't want to see it. Now, I have never had the courage to take this book 
to an unbeliever and open it up at a genealogy and proclaim Christ for the first time from a genealogy. But I'll tell you, it could work. It really could. Because if your eyes are open to see the truth of God, you cannot miss who Jesus is. There's no way this can be orchestrated to deceive. Jesus is the Savior ordained from eternity past to save his people from their sins. And so we can read a genealogy and rejoice. Boy, are you weird, huh? We're a bunch of, <laughs> we're a bunch of nuts. We can read a genealogy and get excited. But that is God showing us the truth, showing us how he has painstakingly led to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Christian, you will never meet anybody more important, more real, more perfect than Jesus Christ. If you have met him, you have met the ultimate man. The ultimate friend, the ultimate husband, the ultimate Lord, the ultimate Savior. Everyone else is a pretender. And everyone else who we place in this man's position is an idol. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And for those that want to see it, God has put our nose in these horribly boring genealogies, and he said, here it is. It's him. How rich we are to see it and to know it wasn't just made up. It was placed there by the foreknowledge and set purpose of God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we rejoice in your presence tonight. We thank you for your grace. I'm just reminded as I pray and as your people's prayers ascend, we just don't perceive who Jesus is. We don't perceive it as we should. So I pray, dear God, with all of my heart that you will open our eyes to see his wonder, his majesty, and your eternal design that points us to see that he is not a figment of our imagination. He is not the lead character of a carefully crafted myth. Jesus is who you said he was when you split the heavens and said, this is my beloved son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. God, may we hear him, may we follow him, may we love him, and may we proclaim his name to a needy world. Lord, we rejoice and want to stop to give you thanks for what you've accomplished in our church over these last few days in our Bible school. God, our hearts are rejoicing, and yet at the same time, they are so very heavy. Because we know that so many that came to hear the gospel on Thursday night and those children that heard it 
during the week, so many are still not your children. They've not embraced Christ. And so we plead for them. And we ask God that you will move and that you will adorn the message of the gospel of Christ that comes from our lips and from the example of our church in this neighborhood and the example of our families in our various neighborhoods. And I pray that you will grant us a harvest of righteousness, that we might have the joy of introducing this one to people who so desperately need him. Allow us to proclaim Christ crucified and risen, the descendant of David, the Son of God. And we will thank you and rejoice together with the angels of heaven as you hear our prayer and grant us this fruit and joy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Appreciate your long attention here tonight again. We're just going to be dismissed and spend time, encourage each other, and thank you for being here.